across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. So, is it doom or gloom? Is it boom or bust? The messages coming out of the powers that be are still about as mixed as a bag of licorice, all sorts, it seems to be. The Prime Minister told the country yesterday, if we don't follow the rules, we might all have to go back into a second full lockdown. Shortly before his dad, Stanley, was pictured uh, not following the rules by shopping without a mask. Meanwhile, the government's chief scientific advisor, Sir Patrick Vallance, told us that we don't have the virus under control, his words, at the moment. Shortly before admitting that his figure of 50,000 potential infections was made up to alarm people. It was also despite the boffins at Imperial College claimed that the R rate has now gone back down to 1.1, which of course you would expect to happen because they were the ones that put it up in the first place. All of this was shortly before former Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn was pictured at a dinner party for nine people, breaking the rule of six. Who knew he had that many friends? And as if all that wasn't confusing enough, the government was victorious in pushing through the coronavirus bill that gives them more powers for more measures for the next six months. Marvellous, isn't it? Luckily, we've managed to find somebody who voted against it. Lib Dem Christine Jardin. We're going to be asking her, what on earth is going on? 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we're talking to Professor Carol Sakura following that terrible call yesterday that we had on the show from Carol in Southampton, who's having to crowdfund her own cancer treatment because the NHS isn't doing it because of the lockdown. We want to hear more of your stories about treatments being cancelled because of the current situation, because it has to stop, and we have to be able to tell the powers that be that it has to stop. 0344 499-1000. The Donna Harvey joins us from the USA with all the fallout from that first feisty presidential debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And we've got Helen Dale, author and commentator on the rule of law and how government restrictions cannot become the norm. Plus, Storm Alex is coming. Plus, we'll be talking about sending illegal migrants off uh, to uh, far shores where they can apparently live for the rest of time uh, in the South Pacific. I'm not quite sure how that works. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet, it is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, if you look at the papers this morning, you've got Mr Boom versus Mr Doom on the front page of the Daily Mail. That's a, a positive statement from Andy Haldane from the Bank of England. And then, of course, Mr Negative, the Prime Minister, who says, you know, he doesn't want to put us into a second lockdown, but he might have to if his dad doesn't stop going out without a mask. Floating asylum centres planned on retired ferries uh, in the Times. The virus could be contained locally. Um, pictures of uh, Boris Johnson's dad and uh, Jeremy Corbyn on the front of the Sun and the Mirror. Um, it's becoming a bit of a pantomime, isn't it? Let's talk to Christine Jardin, a Lib Dem, uh, our favourite Lib Dem, probably, I would say, the one of the few of them that talks sense. Christine, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. I'm sorry, you, I'm sorry to damn is... you with faint praise there. That's all right. <laughs> Listen, I know you can take it. So you were one of the few people who actually voted against the coronavirus uh, bill last mm. night. Tell us why and tell us why hardly any, anybody else did. Well, in the end, I mean, there had been a threatened huge Tory revolt, as you know, Graham Brady was going to vote, but it didn't happen. Right. Um, basically, we voted against it because there are things in, there are measures in the coronavirus bill, which the government doesn't need, and the things that we do need to tackle coronavirus are in the Public Health Act. Yeah. So why do we need this legislation? We need parliamentary scrutiny. We need to be able to, to make sure that we can um, have the, the right public health measures when we need them, and it's all in the Public Health Act. We don't need this, and it's got it goes much further and in, invades people's privacy, gives the police powers in various different areas that we don't need. So 
why overburden us with, with stuff and, and powers that really we don't need when the legislation is there already? Yes, but they didn't uh, go along with that because the worry I've got, right, is that after we saw that they sort of snuck in this rule about 85 decibels and music that you can't play too loud and other various sort of strange rules that we didn't know they were bringing in, you know, what are we yeah. going to get in the next six months that we don't know we're going to get? Well, that's the problem. I mean, the the actual the, there are things in the bill also which are illegal, like the care act easements, are especially concerning. You know, three quarters of the families with disabled children had their care stopped mm. altogether during lockdown. So, you know, you know, we're concerned about that. You know, legal. You know, the legal analysis of it says that the government's reduction um, of disabled people's rights in the act is dangerous. Now, that's one thing, and that is hugely important. Yeah. But as you, you've got things coming in like police powers to do with noise, police powers to do with other things. For six months. And it where really, is the well, well, where, exactly. where is the ability of people's representatives to say, actually, no, that's invading our rights. Let's do away with that. I mean, um, you've got, the, there are concerning aspects of this law, which certainly have only been used rarely, but they are concerning. Mm. Things about the Section 10 of the Mental Health Act um, and, you know, Schedule 21, you know, powers about potentially infectious people. Goes too far, and it's. We did say six months ago when the government brought this act in that there were extreme circumstances that we were in. Well, we now know what we do and don't need to do, and there are things in the act that really go too far. There really are, and I don't really have any faith uh, in the the word of this particular government to say, "Oh, don't worry, we wouldn't do anything terribly drastic." Because, for example, I don't know what happens. If somebody is to be fined £10,000 for breaching quarantine rules, right, what happens if you haven't got £10,000? Are they going to lock them up? Are they going to turn them loose? Are they going to, uh, to have them dragged out of the house without any kind of a trial? Because, you know, most penalty notices that you get for parking or for, you know, I'm going to say jaywalking. I know that's an American phrase. But, you know, most things that you get handed as a fine are appealable. But none of this seems to be appealable. Well, here we have a, a strange situation, Mike. You've got you and I on the same side on this. Yeah. I am worried about this government with this act, but I, I'm worried about what they're going to do with the powers that are in it that they don't really they don't need for this situation and are going um, infringing on people's civil liberties. Um, but I'm also worried about the sheer incompetence of them. Um, why have they put this act forward when we don't need it? What are, what are they actually doing to help people? What is it that... Um, which mistake are they going to make next? Mm. Um, because just before um, you rang me, I, there was a news flash that there's a statement coming today from the European Union in response to the internal markets bill and the fact that the government's going to, um, we think, the statement's going to be about what their reaction to our government saying they're going to break international law and you know tear up the, the treaty that they made with the EU by... Um, passing the internal markets bill. Now, Parliament warned them. The Liberal Democrat, but we warned them a year ago of the dangers of going down the route that they went down with this agreement that Boris said was perfect. Now, here we have a government which is so incompetent that they've got us into this situation. And they say, give us these powers, which we don't think they need, and which infringe on people's civil liberties. So I'm becoming increasingly worried about where this government is going. And I think the fact that you and I are 
um, on the same side as maybe going too far, but you and I are kind of. Um, <laughs> well, I'm going to differ. I'm going to tell you. We no, should all be worried about it. Well, indeed. I mean, I'm going to differ from you on the internal markets bill, though, because the only way that Britain right, Britain breaks the international law is if the EU does it first. And so, you know, the EU are perfectly within their rights to break international law, and we're not. How no, does that work? I don't accept that. I don't accept that. This treaty that um, we are now um, reneging on is a treaty that Boris sold to Parliament. He sold, first of all, to the Conservative Party. And they sold it to Parliament, and then they sold it to the country. And at each stage, they told us that you know this was the solution. Um, now, we've been talking in Parliament since the whole time I've been here since 2017 about the dangers to the Good Friday Agreement um, and the dangers of putting a, a border up the middle of the Irish Sea. Suddenly, Boris has discovered this after the event, after he told us this was all a deal. And now it's got us all into trouble um, with the EU. The concept of a British government... Well, hang on. We don't really care that we're in trouble law. with the EU, though, do we? Well, when I say we're in trouble with the EU... You know, they don't rule I mean, the world, you know. Rather that the whole world we're probably in trouble with, yeah. <laughs> um, we're, you know, the concept for me of a British government um, floating international law is unbelievable. We were instrumental in establishing the rule of law, um, international rule of law. We've got a fantastic reputation. Now, on the one hand, we're saying to China, you're ignoring this, you know, the Sino-British Treaty in 1984 about Hong Kong. We're trying to protect Hong Kong. Saying to China that they should be respecting international law and the rule of law. And we are not doing it. Yeah. But hang this on a government is risking. Hang on a second. We've... Right. Hang on. You know, this is why you lot are never going to get into power, right? Because we find a com an area of common ground and you immediately move off it to start arguing with me about something else. Why don't well, we talking about the coronavirus bill, which we're supposed to be agreeing on. I didn't want you to get too worried about you and I agreeing, Mike. Listen, we've, <laughs> thought, a, we can do this all the time. It's a very broad but, church here at the Independent Republic, as you well know. But let's talk yeah. about the local lockdowns, for example, because there doesn't appear to me to be any evidence whatsoever, and I don't know whether you'll agree with me on this, that the local lockdowns have worked particularly well. Places which have been under lockdown for a much longer time than places that haven't been have still got a rising number of infections. They still refuse steadfastly to, to admit that the numbers of infections are not the important number. It's the number of hospitalizations that's the important number. And I don't understand why they won't make that shift. I think what we have to do is, and we, we have actually said this consistently, is we need to see the evidence. Um, we need to see the evidence that the government is basing um, all these actions on to know and have confidence yeah. that it is actually the same thing. And you, you, you're not going to agree with me here, Mike, but um, this government has got so many things wrong in this. They've been so incompetent that we need now to see the evidence mm. that um, you know can give us the confidence in decisions because we don't know whether they're making the right decisions or the wrong decisions unless we see the scientific evidence. Well, and, and, the, and the scientific evidence scientific is now evidence. is now being questioned by many scientists. It's not just you know people who don't think the government's doing a great job that are questioning the science. And we've now seen uh, Tory backbenchers calling for the resignation or the firing even of Messrs Witty and Valance, and they're even now admitting that they've come up with a few numbers to try and scare people. I mean, it's just not acceptable, is it? Doesn't it worry you that the government, owned by ventures, um, in one sense it worries us, and another it's a relief. It shows that you know. These are people, you know, people are thinking for themselves. The government's owned by ventures are questioning what they're doing. 
it's not just people like me on you know the opposition benches where if I say oh they've got this wrong I would understand completely if you know say oh of course you would say that well the government's owned by benches are questioning what they're doing and yeah. the scientific evidence and their, their competence so I think we really there are serious questions that this government has to answer about how it's handled this crisis from day one mm. and from the, the lack of PPE the lack of planning um, and I saw today somebody mentioning the fact that um, we're now six, seven months down the line. And the second wave is here. Have they actually fixed the things that were wrong the first time? And are we going to be in a bit? I sincerely hope that we're going to be in a better position this time. When well, it seems very clear that it's a very different situation now. And that's certainly what those who are watching the numbers and who are looking at the infection rates and looking at the way that people are getting sick and the numbers of people who are dying. It's a very different state of affairs. But, I mean, I've, I've been very concerned this week. We've had a couple of callers. Paula from Durham, first of all, a woman who went in uh, to hospital at the end of December last year uh, with, a, with a shattered leg. She had two pins put in her leg. Um, they, they, her body basically didn't accept them, and she became infected. She's now in a wheelchair because she hasn't been able to get the surgery because of the lockdown. And it's just yeah. un unbelievable. Another woman yesterday was an even worse case where uh, Carol from Southampton, who has got a brain tumour and needs to now crowdfund her own private care because the NHS won't give her what she needs to save her life at the age of 57. And this surely is a tip of the iceberg and something has to be done about it. It is. It is. Um, and the worrying thing is if we are going to carry on down this route that we're on with the EU and not have a deal, and I, I know you're going to say, I'm, you know, Ramona and all the rest of that. I'm not saying that. What I'm, what I'm saying is that the government needs to have a deal with the European Union. They need to figure it out because we can't go into the 1st of January in a situation where we potentially are in um, a second wave of coronavirus. And we have all these problems which we're already seeing with the NHS, and not just before the SNPC at the NHS in England. Right across the UK, we're seeing these problems. Um, we can't go into the 1st of January in a situation where we don't have a deal and it gets worse because, you know, that must be avoided at all costs. They have to come up with a deal. We can't have a situation where we've got lorries with perishable pharmaceuticals from the EU um, queued up at Dover. That can't happen. It just can't happen. Well, nobody thinks um, it will I think happen. Right. I mean, I the, think only, the only people who are saying that will happen are the same people that were saying it would happen like this time last year before we managed to actually have an election and actually managed to leave the EU. I mean, it's all the scary stories that we, we had saying, then. A year ago, we were saying we have to have a deal. And last month, we were saying we have to have a deal. Today, I'm saying we have to have a deal. And the deadline is still there, and we still haven't got a deal. And the government is talking about queues in Kent. Um, you know, that's ridiculous. I had, I had someone say the other the other day that, you know, what's going to happen to Kent? Is it just going to become, you know, a big car park? And that's ludicrous. Well, obviously it's not, um, is it's it? Not, I mean, that's just rubbish, right? We haven't got to the end of the transition period with a deal, which the government should have done. Boris's slogan has been get Brexit done. Yeah. Getting Brexit done involved getting a deal, and he hasn't got one, and he's running out of time. And we need a deal so that the road holliers are saying, you know, they could be facing a very difficult situation. Now, this yeah, is but an they were industry, saying the same thing last this year. This is an industry which has kept food on our shelves, pharmaceuticals in our chemists, and kept the country going through COVID-19 by getting things up and down the country and in from the continent and making sure that we had what we needed. And they're now saying 
And we don't have a deal with the Pakistan. You know, the government. Yeah, they've always doesn't... said that. The Road Hoolies Association have always said that. They haven't changed their view. They've always had the same no, view. No, they haven't changed their view, but the government still hasn't listened to them. Well, the government, the government still, still has hasn't time. Yeah, but they still have time still to get hasn't a deal. Got the deal. But you're doing it again. Sorry? You know, let's stick to the. Let's, all right, let me throw you something else then. What about old okay. uh, Oliver Mundell? You mentioned the SNP. Um, apparently, Oliver Mundell was chucked out of the chamber in Holyrood uh, by the yeah. SNP because he didn't like what he was saying. What can you tell me about that? Um, well, I wasn't actually there for the debate, and I haven't seen it, but I have heard the reports that um, Oliver, who is David Mundell's son, David right. Mundell, former Conservative Scottish Secretary, it's his son, and Oliver um, apparently made a remark, um, an accusation about the First Minister, yeah. um, which he didn't withdraw and then was asked to leave the chamber. Now, the same thing would happen in the Commons. Yeah, he, he called her a liar, him. I think, didn't he? Oh, yeah, I, am. <laughs> I don't want to get involved in... I think that's, well, that's what I'm told he said. That is what he's reported to have said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, the SNP have been in power in Scotland now for 13 years. Yeah. And one of the things which has happened in the past few months and has kind of come to a head with um, the state of... Well, the the astonishing number of um, COVID cases in our universities in Scotland at the moment is that, you know, the, the veneer is beginning to come off. Mm. The SNP have been telling us what a wonderful job they're doing, but actually they're no more competent in this than, than Boris has been. No. And they're also um, putting in some even more bizarre measures than he has. I mean, the idea that you <laughs> cannot play music of any kind whatsoever uh, in a pub. I mean, really? Well, that's not what worries me about it. It's not the, if you like, the kind of slightly off-the-wall different things that bother me. What bothers me is that we have a generation of kids in Scotland who um, have just turned 18. Uh, some of them are still 17. They've had their entire educational careers under the SNP. Mm. Um, in the summer, they had an exam fiasco that was just outrageous. It was even worse than it was in England. Mm. Um, and they didn't get the right exam results. They had to wait for the results. The results were, it was a mess. And now they've gone to university. They get to university, having been assured that they'll get tuition and all the rest of it, to discover that they're going to be confined to their rooms mm. and that, you know, they might not go home at Christmas. Right. It's just outrageous. And, the, the, you know, one of the allegations is that the Scottish government knew, but they were worried about, you know, if kids didn't go to university, the funding implications for the Scottish university system and, and they, this, these these eighteen year olds, these teenagers, um, they've been through school at a time when the Scottish education system, which we used to be so proud of, I'm sure we bored the pants off everybody in England <laughs> and Wales, yes. talking about how we had the best education system in the world, mm. because frankly we did, but now we don't, right. and we're plummeting down international league tables in the last thirteen years, and one in five kids in Scotland leave school functionally illiterate. That's not good enough. Mm. And the SNP, I think, next May will have to answer for that. Yeah. Um, and they'll have to answer for the mess that they've made. I mean, the care home deaths in Scotland in COVID-19, is it's just appalling. It's disgusting. And all of these things, I think they will be held to account for by the people in Scotland. Much the same way as when the next general election comes around, 
Boris is going to have serious questions to answer about how he's dealt with COVID-19. Well, and I mean, who knows if he's even going to be in charge by the time the next election comes around. That's quite a long way off. Oh, I couldn't possibly comment on that. No, of course you couldn't. I'll tell you what you can comment on, some breaking news here. The European Commission has said it will start legal action against Boris Johnson's bid to potentially override parts of the Brexit deal. So they're going to seek solace in the courts. I guess that'll be a European court then. Well, they're seeking solace in courts that we helped establish, that the UK helped establish. And we would do exactly the same with a country that reneged on a treaty with us. We would do exactly the same. That's the rule of law, and that's what we helped establish. And that's what I would always have hoped that British governments would stand by, would abide by. And it just, you know, it breaks well, my I heart would, to think what suggest, they're doing to our reputation. Well, I mean, I wouldn't worry about too much about the reputation, Christine. What I would worry about is that this, to me... Uh, will we'll point everybody in the direction of no deal because we'll just go, well, if, that, if that's what you want to do, if you want to go through the courts and delay this for years and years and years and years, you might as well you know, pack up and go home. But Boris must have known that. I, I, well, maybe, I maybe, believe... maybe it's a cunning plan in that case. Well, if it's a cunning plan, it's not a very good one. It's one that even Baldrick wouldn't have wanted, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> Listen, Christine Jarn, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Lib Dem MP from Edinburgh West. Uh, that's the breaking news. Brussels claims the Prime Minister has breached the good faith promise both sides signed up to in the withdrawal agreement struck and passed by Parliament last year. Bottom line, of course, uh, is that this will chase, presumably, uh, the British negotiators into a no-deal situation, because what else can they do? Why would you wait around for a European court to judge against this, this country? Because that's what they're going to do. Why bother? Just leave. Cheerio. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, though, uh, we're going to speak to Benjamin Lockmain, of course, commentator, uh, a man that knows a thing or two about uh, the migration situation in this country because he's been on Twitter this week um, down at Napier Barracks, down in Folkestone. Uh, we've got the news this morning coming from the government that there's a possibility that there will be floating asylum centres planned on retired ferries. Also, uh, ministers are considering uh, putting people uh, who come to this country illegally uh, into other parts of the world. Moldova's been mentioned. Uh, New Guinea's been mentioned as well. Let's find out whether this is a viable option and it sounds like a good idea but is it something that's workable benjamin a very good morning to you morning thanks very much indeed for joining us i was listening to an australian commentator a little bit earlier this morning who was saying this is very much a uh, an idea from australia because they actually came up with this idea that if you land on any part of australia illegally in a, a small boat uh, which you have not got permission to use to come to the country you will never ever be able to settle in the country and they started resettling these people um in sort of island communities yeah, well, um, I think the uh, government at the moment really like the idea of Australian style, whatever it is, immigration wise, because people look at Australia and think, oh, they, they're a country are switched on. They understand what's going on. Yeah. But they're a very different country to us. And they've got a lot more uh, in, in terms of land and island space and all the rest of it. So it is something that is possible. But I don't think we should be too gung ho about just copying exactly what Australia do. What we really need to be doing is returning people to the countries they come from. Uh, in the first place to yeah. stop them from coming over in such great numbers. But the problem with doing that, of course, is that they try to do that. And whenever they do try to do that, they get thwarted by the human rights lawyers and people are getting dragged off planes at the sort of 11th hour. Uh, and quite often the planes don't end up leaving the country at all. Yeah, we need to get rid of the um, Human Rights Act. We need to get rid of uh, Blair's 1999 Immigration Act. And we need to uh, withdraw from the Dublin Three Agreement at the end of this year or 
if beforehand we can do so, I think we uh, we should fast track that because at the moment it's uh, incentivizing these crossings in the greatest numbers imaginable. Uh, you know, when human traffickers over in France say, oh, they're leaving the EU at the end of the year and it won't be so easy for you to make these crossings after that, which, by the way, isn't true. Mm. Uh, but it's a very good marketing tactic. So it just drives people to uh, to leave. But the first thing we need to do is we need to leave the Dublin 3 agreement, get out of that, get ourselves out of any sort of bind with EU law. Then we need to start addressing our domestic law. We need to start looking at the Human Rights Act and the uh, Immigration Act and uh, and just get rid of all of the namby-pamby, soft, weak, uh, so-called human rights um, caveats that mm. exist in it, which create huge loopholes for people to abuse the system. But are you confident that this government can do that come January once we leave the European Union? Are they able to do that? Um, I'm, I'm sure they're able. I don't think they're willing. I mean, they've got an 80-seat majority. Uh, they're very uh, capable of passing through all sorts of emergency coronavirus legislation. They're perfectly willing to uh, make everybody in the country wear masks and, uh, you know, uh, wash their hands every 20 seconds or whatever it is that they come up with because they've written it down on the back of a napkin a week before. Um, so if they can do that, then they can probably get a control of the borders if they really want to. But I don't think they want to. Mm. Um, I don't know why they wouldn't want to. But based on what I've seen, I can't reach any other conclusion. No, quite. I see from one of the stories in the papers this morning in the Times that people smugglers are now running cut price deals uh, to get to Britain. I presume that's sort of weather related, where uh, basically they're, they're, for as little as 500 euros, uh, you can book a place on one of these dinghies now, which doesn't uh, doesn't bode well, does it, for the autumn? Well, I suppose it's uh, that, that, that funny thing that happens when people buy in bulk. When you've got so many people coming in and it gets cheaper just mm. because they're making so much money already um that that you know while getting while the going's good as it were but i was uh when i went to napier barracks as you know this week yeah. and uh i i we went around the front and security told us basically to piss off uh and refused to speak to us and the one chap who came up to the fence and did speak to us um that is security not not the migrant he was called back immediately by a superior and mm. given a, a thrashing um, and then uh, when they noticed we had cameras, they started herding all of the migrants into the barracks to try and uh, to basically so that we couldn't film any right. of the migrants in their great numbers. Um, but we went around the back instead and we found one who was sort of walking uh, very slowly back to the barrack he was supposed to be staying in. And I asked him, uh, I asked him where he was from and, you know, how long he'd been here. And he, he didn't quite understand at first what I was asking. But I was, so I said, have you been here a couple of days, a couple of weeks? He went, oh, no, 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 two hours. Really? Two hours. Right. So, that, you know, they are coming in fresh and fast. Mm. Um, you know, they, they I mean, I suppose no... the, the difficulty, I suppose, Benjamin, for us is that you and I have been talking about this for a while um, and we've been looking for solutions. Putting people from a, a, a boat that's just arrived in a, a, into a beach situation into a barracks right by the coast seems reasonably efficient, doesn't it? I mean, if you're going to keep, as long as, as, long as there's a reasonable amount of security, uh, which means that the people who go to these camps um, aren't just wandering off and going wherever they like. You know, it seems to me to be an improvement on putting them up in a hotel somewhere in the middle of Coventry. Yeah, well, these barracks are probably about a 25-minute drive from um, Dover, where they come in. But yeah. a lot closer to Dover is the old Dover Detention Centre, which, of course, they closed down in 2015 totally needlessly. It was entirely fit for purpose. It was, it was built and designed for the job. It had previously been a prison, and it was a detention centre for the past 40 or so years. But at the start of the migrant crisis, they closed it down. 
and you have to you have to question why on earth they would make such a disastrous decision to get rid of the facility right on the coast mm. where you can actually stand where the, the old moats used to be on the bridge and look down and all you see is the shore you are within a stone's throw of where people are coming in um but you know they they make all of these bad policy decisions and then they follow them up with even worse policy decisions like putting them up in hotels and barracks mm. but there, there's a huge optics issue when you have a series of you know 15 20 30 40 50 200 whatever however many people a day that come in all of which are fighting age males or almost all of which and you're putting them up in barracks i mean it, it doesn't inspire confidence does it no, it really doesn't. But as I say, I mean, I'd, I suppose most people who live in uh, cities in Britain would rather barracks than, than hotels, as I say. I mean, we approached Serco a couple of weeks ago and said, are you involved in moving migrants from hotels into these barracks? And they said they were not, which suggests that the hotels are still occupied. Well, I actually asked um, the security guy if he worked for Serco. Of course, he totally ignored me. But I got the gist that it wasn't this wasn't a Serco operation right. or... If it, if it were a circle operation, it was in, in direct integration with the government. Because, as we know, um, Serco is effectively a privatised arm of the government. They don't deal with anything apart from government contracts. So why is it being filtered out to this shady private company whose uh, chairman is, of course, uh, Rupert Soames, uh, the brother of Nicholas Soames mm. and the, the, the grandchild of uh, Winston Churchill? It seems to be a bit of a, a, a kind of pyramid scheme to me what's going on here. Yes. But I... This, when I went around the back, I spoke to this migrant and um, I asked him where he was from and he said he was from Iraq, mm. but he'd previously lived in Croydon. Right. And I said to him, well, why did you leave Croydon? Why have you gone back to Iraq and then back here? And he said, uh, he sort of looked at me a bit like he didn't really want to reply. Mm. And I said, were well, you deported previously? Yeah. And he pretended not to know what the word deported means. Mm. Now, I don't know if I'm being cynical here, but if you're an illegal immigrant who has previously been an illegal immigrant in this country, at some point, somewhere or other, you will have heard the word deported yeah. or deportation, and you'll understand the concept. Uh, so I think he was trying to avoid saying that he had previously been deported mm. and somehow come back, because this is what's going on with the government. If they deport people, they're so weak and they're so lax that they'll just come back. Right. They, you know, they know that, oh, okay, this is a minor setback on my journey to yeah. getting asylum in England. I'll just come back and try again. Um, but this, he certainly wasn't returning from holiday, that's for sure. No. Uh, and he was, there he was, designer clothes clad, holding an iPhone, quite a recent iPhone, yeah. you know, um, of which the phone bill is being paid by the British taxpayer, no doubt. And I spoke to one of the um, the locals who, who drove us around, a, a taxi driver. He was a, an immigrant himself, but he was um, he was totally on side with us because he was saying it's, it's disgraceful the way that people are coming in yeah. illegally. I had to work hard to get here. Uh, you know, it's really disgusting. I see it every day. I live in Dover. I see them coming in. Mm. I'll take you down to the beach where I've watched migrants get out of boats and literally run for the hills. Yeah. So they're not even being counted into the figures. So he took us down. He showed us where it was all going on. And he told me that what they do uh, when they're on their boats is they take the SIM cards out of their phones and they throw them away. And then when they get into British waters, they dial the emergency number mm. 999 and say, we're stranded in the water. Can you come and save us? So, you know, they, you don't need a SIM to make an emergency call, but they're throwing away their SIMs and their identification cards so that they can't be identified or sent back mm. to where they come from. But yeah. they still have their iPhones. They're brand new iPhones, and they don't really care about not having a SIM because the moment they get to Britain and they're put up in a barracks, they start getting their, their 
phone bill paid by the British taxpayer. Yeah. So for them, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a bit of a jolly, isn't it? You come over in your designer clothes where you're from very well-off backgrounds in the countries you're originally from, because by the way, if you're poor in those countries, you die in those countries. If you're genuinely in need, you have no chance of getting to England because you don't have 30,000 or 20,000, however much it is to make that journey all the way across through Europe and the Mediterranean into France and then across the Although Czech there Although there is some um, evidence, though, Benjamin, is there not, that some people coming particularly from places like Sudan uh, are kind of being run to Britain because once they get here, they then become part of some criminal organisation. So I don't think absolutely everyone is paying. I know some of the ones, people coming from Iran and possibly Iraq are paying, but I think some of the people coming from, from more uh, sort of deeper parts of Africa are being kind of recruited effectively to come here. Well, yeah, I think definitely if you look at the sort of breakdown of who these people are, a lot of them being uh, fighting age males who are the kind of people who you would want running your criminal enterprises in this country. Of course, there will be a financial incentive for certain uh, gangs and uh, cohorts to push um, certain kinds of people through because they don't want a load of, you know, elderly um, and uh, needy and all the rest of it. The actual people who probably would be uh, in need of refuge mm. probably not here but, but probably they would be in need of of refuge but you know fighting age males coming over is very clearly a cynical ploy by um uh, certain gangs and traffickers yeah. to get certain people oh there's no the doubt absolutely no doubt benjamin listen we've got to run because we're running late thank you very much indeed benjamin lockman there reporting into us he's been down to napier barracks interesting stories to tell <laughs> Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Is it doom? Is it gloom? Is it boom? Or is it bust? The messages coming out of the powers that be are still about as mixed as a bag of licorice, all sorts. The Prime Minister told the country yesterday if we don't follow the rules, we might all have to go back into a second full lockdown. Shortly before his dad, Stanley, was pictured... um, not following the rules of shopping without a mask. Meanwhile, the government's chief scientific advisor, Sir Patrick Vallance, told us we don't have the virus under control at the moment, shortly before admitting that his figure of 50,000 potential infections was made up to alarm people. And that was shortly before we saw this. Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn pictured at a dinner party, right, for nine people breaking the rule of six. Now, when you look at this picture, here's what you see. A very grumpy-looking Jeremy Corbyn wearing a sort of lumberjack shirt. Now, he's surrounded by, uh, amongst others, his wife, a whole collection of people who are described as artists, activists, socialists, all sorts of ists all over the place, right? It looks like some asparagus tips there on one of the plates. It looks like a very shabby dinner table. They're all sitting way too close to one another for a start. So they're not only breaking the rule of six, they're breaking the social distancing rules as well. Jezza, um, the communist, is uh, not looking at all happy, but he's got his phone on the table, which is another, I'm afraid, social diversion. You're not supposed to do that. And they all look terribly miserable. What sort of food are they eating? What sort of drinks are they drinking? And why do they think that they're better than everybody else? And why are they so thick that they actually let their picture be taken by the ninth person of the party so they can all get into terrible trouble? Jeremy Corbyn proving once and for all that not only was he a useless leader of the Labour Party, but he doesn't even have the common sense to avoid paying a £200 fine, for heaven's sake. And let's hope that he does get fined 200 quid because he is in breach of the regulations. Can you imagine if some uh, know-it-all sort of officer with a high-vis jacket on stuck his nose through your letterbox and said, Oi, oi! There's too many of you in there. Two of you have to leave. Somebody has to take the asparagus tips with them. Socialism. It has no future. They can't even have a dinner table party and mark it right. They can't actually organise. I'm not going to say it because you know what I want to say. They could not organise one. Not even in a brewery. 
That's what I'm telling you. This is Mike Graham. This is the Independent Republic. And this is Talk Radio, the fastest growing radio station on the planet. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, let us talk straight away about the rule of law, because the rule of law is being pressed and bent and kind of pressured uh, by all sorts of things and all sorts of people and all sorts of timings. Let's talk to Helen Dale, uh, writer, lawyer, political commentator, uh, friend of the show, of course. Uh, She's been very, very good over the course of the last few weeks talking to us about her views on all manner of things. Today, um, Helen, I think we do need to talk about this rule of law because where are we exactly with civil liberties in this country and how do we stop the government from continuing to take them away? Well, we've, we've morning, back. Good this morning, sorry. Now, well, good morning. So it's all right. I'm back from Scotland now, so the usual background is in place. Um, we have actually reached quite a serious impasse with rule of law issues. Now, by way of background, the rule of law is is an overarching term that describes somewhere between eight to 10 foundational principles, depending on how you describe them, that are taught to all lawyers in the first year of your law course and are constantly, typically in a course called legal method, legal reasoning, and that are constantly hammered home to you every year of your degree and then when you go and do your articles or traineeship or apprenticeship or pupillage they're constantly drummed into you now the two that are under threat and there are very serious problems at the moment because of the way the coronavirus act is is being used and because of the way the public health legislation going back to 1984 is being used um, the two that are under threat are actually the two most important and the first one is treat like cases alike Mm. that is the first principle and also the corollary of that is treat different cases differently the second principle is laws must be general they must be prospective and they must be clear and the lawyer's definition of clear is capable of being followed you need to be able to do them okay that's right. really quite and that's interesting that's, really that's, that's an interesting one here isn't it because even boris johnson wasn't sure when he was asked exactly. the question the other day precisely what the rules were in the northeast and they're about to change again and i don't mm. think anybody in this country now knows i mean i made um, an allegory yesterday i said you know if i took a train to newcastle i don't actually know what i'm allowed to do technically when i get off the train i don't know if i'm allowed to walk into a bar in the station mm. i don't know having walked into that bar whether i'm allowed to sit down or stand up or go to the bar and get a drink or sit down and wait for somebody to come and bring me a drink uh, or invite somebody I don't know that I've met on the train to come and have a drink with me or meet somebody that I already know uh, who I might want to invite to uh, lunch with me. I have no idea what to do. Well, this is a this is a, a major part of the problem with you know, badly drafted, opaquely drafted legislation. And there's actually a, a barrister called Adam Wagner. I know. Who I recommend you who I recommend you follow on Twitter. I think I do. Exactly. Exactly in the context of those regulations that you're talking about and how confused you are, although admittedly he did this last week, so it's quite likely that they've changed again. Um, He actually went through in a long Twitter thread, he does this and he's very careful the way he does it, um, and pointed out where they all contradicted each other and pointed out where they were just absurd and very difficult to follow and counterintuitive, hard to find out exactly what was going on 
in different parts of the country and so on and so forth. Mm. Now, and Adam has been splendid on this kind of thing. And there's a few a few of them. I've tried to do my bit, um, but I haven't been in full-time practice since mid-2016, whereas people like Francis Ha and the, the Twitter account Legal Fictions, which is a group of lawyers, and also Adam Wagner, they've been terrific on just trying... And they, do, they also are very kind. They try to explain what is going on to help people understand and they don't charge anything for it they're doing it for free although you have to remember that in that context it's not considered legal advice under the auspices of of the law society um so but the the so the rule of law first point treat um not treating like cases alike there are two very clear instances of it the first one is the one that we all know about black lives matter protesters were treated differently from the anti-lockdown protesters Mm. And it appears to be in part on the basis of race, although because both the lockdown protests and the Black Lives Matter protests were racially mixed, Mm. it's more likely to be on the basis of politics. You cannot have that and run civil society. So that one we all know about. But the recent one is the corollary point of treating different cases, not being able to treat different cases differently. And this concerns the university students who are being locked in their halls of residence and treated as though effectively they were as in the same sort of risk category as elderly people in care homes. This is obviously not true. You have had Professor Sakura on here explaining why this is not true. You don't need me to explain it any further. And that is a separate issue from the fact that they have been invited into their halls of residence and have paid their tuition fee, and you talked about them being rinsed for nine over 9,000 quid a year. Yeah. That is only the tuition. Yes. The reason why student debt is escalating and why you're getting this movement among younger, poorer people, people who are less well-off or might be the first person in their family to go to university for free, free university tuition, is not really the tuition that's the issue because the rent to stay in the... In, university accommodation is in addition to the fees people don't realize that and very often these young people either they or their parents or their scholarship provider or the government have paid up front so if that now you're getting the universities starting to back off and particularly after the incident where a chap from sky news was using a selfie stick to interview kids freshers yeah. who've been locked in by manchester metropolitan but were University. they actually locked in though helen because my question to some of these students was you know when i was a student and i admit that it was a much very a very much longer time ago than i'd care to uh, to tell you um we would have not been told to behave and then behaved we would have immediately started walking out and going well we're not having any of that thanks very much well, this is what has happened at Coventry University, isn't it? You know, the students were told you can't socialise, you can't mm. go to the pub, you can't do any of the things that normal students do, particularly when they're living away from home for the first time in their lives. And so what did they do? They organised an illegal rave. You know, just talk to a few people who've been councillors in various London boroughs. This is what happens. Right. And anyone who thinks that university students are going to be any different is in for a big surprise. But I did think those kids, I mean, there have been reports, certainly about university security trying to keep them in. There also have been reports about police doing it. Now, I don't know whether the police have been involved in this, and I will be very alarmed if they are, because that is actually worse than private security 
paid by the university because you can at least litigate privately against the university, whereas the police, it's a bit more difficult yes. because it's an arm of the state. Right. And then and the you've got the COVID marshals who don't seem to fit into either one of those categories, who, I, as far as I'm aware, don't actually have any legal right to do anything to you. Well, this is the thing that the entire problem with this, and this falls into the second category of the, the, the rule of law problems where we've got well, the law must be general applies to everybody yeah. it must be prospective as to the future you can't pass legislation that makes something illegal today um, that was legal yesterday and then ping someone for something that they did last week that's uh, that's known as the presumption yes. against retroactive or retrospective law although so it, i mean has... i don't want to veer off into another tangent here but hmrc are getting quite good at doing that retrospective penalties for people oh, yes. because they say that they've broken tax rules which weren't in place at the time that they allegedly broke them Yes, I know. HMRC are notorious for this. And um, and it, it really is. It's rinsing people. Yeah. And it is a notorious grey area because the presumption against retroactive law is always stronger in the criminal law than it is in the mm. civil law. Mm. But because of the way tax penalties work, they're in this awful grey area between civil and criminal law. So, yes, I don't like that either. Mm. But that's a that's a separate issue. Yeah. Uh, so you've got this situation where people don't know what they stand, where they stand. They don't know what the laws are. They're very hard to follow. Mm. They're confusing. And they're also encouraging, and this is a separate a separate issue again from, um, from the two rule of law points, although it, it's related to them. They're also encouraging snitch behaviour. Yeah. So you get Stanley Johnson being snitched on. You get Jeremy Corbyn being snitched on. I mean, and this has been going on for quite a long time. Mm. I remember when the, the writer for The Times, you know, it was was loudly proclaiming, Caitlin Moran was loudly proclaiming that lockdown was easy. And then her next door neighbor, um, who was, a, he was a nurse for the NHS, the NHS, then sort of tweeted out to the world, um, oh, by the way, she's breaking all the lockdown rules. And this is when we were in hard lockdown. I that. In her back In her back garden. Yeah. And I sort of thought, and at the time I laughed and I did retweet it because it did show this problem that the media class has with, thinking rules for thee and not for me, which was quite, which has been quite a serious problem at the presses. You saw it yesterday. And a, a lot of people, including a, a writer I admire, a travel writer for The Telegraph, pointed out, you know, these people seem to want another hard lockdown. And they seem to want it in part because it's easy for them, although quite a lot of them also fall into the category of individuals who... Uh, say they support the lockdown, and we talked about this last week on the Independent Republic mm. of Mike Graham. We talked about this problem of people who say they support the lockdown, yes. and then when it's inconvenient, they breach the rules right. and then lie to pollsters about it, which yes. makes it very difficult for the government to know what people actually are thinking in their heads. Because what's weird at the moment, Helen, is the government is hanging its hat on the fact that most of the public are doing the right thing. And Boris yes. keeps repeating that as if it's somehow uh, an amazing um, talent that he has managed to get to be the Pied Piper uh, of people doing the right thing. And they're all doing it because they respect him. And he's kind of trying to bathe in the reflection of what I would say is a completely false narrative. Because everybody I talk yes, to I tells me, everybody I talk to tells me that at some point or other, whether inadvertently or by mistake, they've done something they perhaps shouldn't have done. Well, yes, and this is what is generating this really, really unpleasant social discord that does lead to the snitching behaviour. Mm. And the and the most recent examples of it are Stanley Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. And you know, 
and and you've got the classic you know, picture of Jeremy Corbyn on the front page of the paper looking like Captain Grumpy, and then you get the the, the picture of Stan. You, you'll get Stanley Johnson going, "Oh, I forgot, or I just yes. came back from overseas." Well, at least whatever. I mean, I suppose the good news for Stanley Johnson is at least he was papped by what looks like a professional photographer, whereas Jeremy Corbyn <laughs> has got a friend who basically sold a picture of him to the Sun. <laughs> Yes, I mean, you know, for a given value of friend, I suppose yes. you have to you right. have to say that. But so these are these things are. I'm staying away from the science because you've got Professor Sakura and people who are much more knowledgeable about this than me, and just focusing on the civil liberties and also the implications of the civil liberties breaches. Mm. Part of which seems to stem, and this is what where I caused a bit of a stink on social media last night when I said this, I saw. from people who, who simply cannot understand why other people have different preferences from them. So you get the upper middle class journalists and the media class who, who do, as my Telegraph writer uh, tweet pointed out, uh, seem to want another lockdown mm. because lockdowns are easy for them and they like them. Some people, a significant number of people, it has become clear, prefer to work from home. Yeah. They don't like the daily commute and they think it's bloody great. And they also, the other corollary of this is they also are being paid in funny money. Yes. I mean, that's what we're all being paid with it. The world, not all of us, but a significant percentage of the British population is being paid with what amounts to funny money. Yeah. And at some point, the merry-go-round is going to stop and mm. the chickens will come home to roost and every other kind of cliche you can think of. <laughs> and we're going to have to, we, that money is going to have to be repaid because it is effectively, it is being generated by, by, by gross a gross increase mm. in the amount of def the annual deficit and overall debt and already before the austerity program debt was high austerity brought it down and now but it in many respects failed it caused serious problems with social care as we now know and dis people who are disabled i mean ed davy the, the liberal democrat chap does have a point about disabled people and we're just but the thing is the debt is real it's not going to go away. And the funny, at some point, the funny money has to stop. So you've got that group of people who love lockdown and want more of it, or at least very strict restrictions, because it gives them an opportunity to work from home and spend more time with their children and, and not have to spend an hour on right. the tube each way. They don't so, have to meet any then, horrible working class people either. Well, yes. And then you've got other people who are being driven completely round the bend yes. by this by being locked in their houses, who people who need social interaction in the office mm. uh, in order to come up with good ideas with their work colleagues. Okay, they often accept, I noticed last night when I was talking to people like this, that okay, the days of the five day a week commuter perhaps over, and that's fine, but they still need two to three days a week in the office yeah. in order to get their heads on straight. Well, apart from and anything it, else, Helen, I mean, it's a natural human state. I was talking to Neil Oliver yes. about this yesterday. It's a natural human state to socialise and to yes. mix with people in person. It's not a natural state to sit staring at a computer screen with 10 people on it uh, who are all looking, staring into this kind of, you know, abyss without mm. having any interaction with actual people. It's ridiculous. Well, this is why there are reasons why. I mean, think of cartoons for you know, the famous ones from the New Yorker mm. or Matt in the Daily Telegraph. You know, there are always cartoons that are about the water cooler, standing around the water cooler or going to the office cafeteria for a coffee or going to prep for a mm. coffee. You know, this kind of thing. There are always cartoons about it because that is when people socialise and interact. Mm. And a significant percentage of the population needs that. Right. And it's not just 
for their work to be better at their jobs. It's also they need that as human mm, beings, which course. is Neil Oliver's which is Neil Oliver's point, yeah. of course, and your point as well. And what we've noticed, and this is fed into the problems with the rule of law and fed into the snitching as well, the snitch behaviour that we're now seeing today, um, is they don't understand each other and they are mistaking, both groups are doing this, their preferences for everybody else's preferences. And this is aided and abetted by that headline polling figure from YouGov and other polling companies have found something similar, that 78% of people support the lockdown. Mm. And then you've got other figures showing that 40% of people routinely breach the lockdown rules or other significant restrictions on their behaviour, even if it's not a full lockdown. Mm. So everyone is telling lies to themselves and well not everyone but a significant percentage of the population are lying to themselves lying to other people lying to pollsters you finished up with the government not actually in control of its own legislative program you've got the abrogation now although i understand why the speaker sir lindsay did this of um, parliamentary scrutiny for the simple reason that this is a time, realistically, yesterday, had John Burko not made an absolute spectacle of the role of Speaker last year, mm. this is a time that we really should have had that ability of the Parliament to take control from the executive, from the Cabinet, because uh, it included many Tories, many Labour, and I suspect all of the Lib Dems and SNP, so they would have had the numbers. Um, this is a time for Parliament to ex exercise that power, to take, to, to, to use the expression last year, to take control of the order paper and do things with it. And Sir Lindsay didn't select that amendment for very good reasons, because he doesn't want to start that whole charade up mm. that Burko did last year. And yet what you've got, th this is ministerial, these are ministerial orders Right. These, but the, also they're too vague as well, Helen. All, all that yes. they really do is allow the government to do what it wants. It doesn't set well, yeah, out is... in any way a section of, of this is what we want to do so that at least you could then say, all right, well, well, that's OK. That's not OK. You know what I mean? So so we're basically given mm, carte exactly. blanche to do whatever they want. Well, this is this is exactly the point. And this is the, the, the second issue, rule of law issue that is being impinged upon about laws being general, prospective and clear, capable of being followed. But the other point is that when ministers do that, they're actually using the prerogative power. That ministerial power is part of the royal prerogative. It comes from the crown. Mm. You know, it's effectively absolutist. It has roots in absolutism. And yet. It's. And it's, Parliament is not able to scrutinise it. Mm. And then Sir Lindsay is placed in the awful position of having to say, no, I can't select that amendment because this ability of the Speaker to select an amendment that does give the Parliament more power was abused so grossly last year and it reduced the mother of parliaments to, to confine it to the, to the, the Palace of Westminster yeah. to, to make it into a global laughing stock. Right. And also, let's not forget, this takes us now into April of next year, which will be the next yes. opportunity we have to see whether anything else can be changed. But God knows where we'll be by then, Helen. But listen, we'll have to let you go because we're running out of time. Yes, no, that's, a, that's all right. I shall... 
I, I shall talk to you again next week. Same time, same channel. Don't miss it. Um, Helen Dale there talking to us about the rule of law and how important it is uh, that we should make sure uh, that whatever we give power to uh, the politicians to do, that they don't overstep the mark. But we don't know what that's going to be. How about this from uh, from Emily, a friend of mine who's just tweeted this. I've just been verbally abused. I'm not going to say what the woman said because it's rather uh, filthy language for not wearing my mask while I drank a coffee on the empty outdoor train platform. 100% normal start to the day. And strangely enough, she decided to come right up to my face while demanding to know whether I was exempt. Could it be that her anger had very little to do with the virus? Well, I mean, that's the kind of thing that's happening to people and it's unacceptable. It shouldn't be happening. You shouldn't be going up to people and berating them for any reason. If they're not wearing a mask, what's it got to do with you? Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Of course, Ian Collins will be here just before one o'clock to tell us what's coming up on his show. Dan Wooden from four, of course, as well. Uh, right now, though, it's time for our homeschooling episode of the day uh, because at 12.30 every day after the news, uh, we try and do a little bit of homeschooling, a bit of self-educating. Now, obviously, most children have gone back to school now, uh, whether or not some of them have been sent home already uh, is a vet is another sort of uh, moot point really but uh, I've already learned something and we haven't even started yet because we're about to speak to Graham Bartram chief vexillologist uh, which I didn't know was a word until today uh, at the flag institute I believe it's somebody um, who studies or, or is an expert in flags Graham a very good afternoon to you Good afternoon, Mike. I like I like learning a new word. I mean, I can't imagine how often I'll use it, but vexillologist is, is quite a title. It's a very handy one for Scrabble. <laughs> I bet it is, yeah. I bet you get loads of points for that. But um, <laughs> but we're going to talk about the Union flag, and I've just been pointing out to uh, one of my producers that the Union Jack is not, in fact, the Union Jack. It is the Union flag, is it not? Well, you can use either name. Can you? Yes. Um, I was told the, you could the, only the, use Union Jack if it was on a ship. The, the, well, the the flag on the front of a ship is a Union Jack. Right. Uh, but it, common usage means that you can call it a U- Union flag or Union Jack. I think the Admiralty sort of worked this out in about ni- 1910 or so. Yes. They finally said, oh, for goodness sake, you can just use either. Right. See, so, this is um, what's wrong with the world today, right? There's no standards anymore. <laughs> there are plenty of standards that people don't keep them. Funnily enough, a standard is also a flag. That's true, yes, a heraldic one. Mm, exactly right. So let's talk about uh, the Union Jack then. Um, what's it made up of? Well, it comprises three different flags. Um, in the background, the blue bit is the Scottish flag, the yep. Saltire of St Andrew. Yes. The horizontal and vertical cross that's in the front is the St George's Cross for yes. England. And then the red bits on the diagonal are a red saltire for Ireland. Right. Although that isn't actually the flag of Ireland. No, because Ulster, it's the Ulster red hand, isn't it, the flag of Northern Ireland? Well, that was the flag until uh, direct rule was uh, introduced. Mm. But the government of Northern Ireland, whose flag that is, ceased to exist in the 70s, I think right. it was. OK. So at present, the official flag for Northern Ireland is a Union flag. Right. OK. That must be popular in some parts of Belfast. Must be very popular. We've been <laughs> working quite hard to try and get them to work together to come up with a flag that they can both be reasonably happy with. 
Well, they can barely work together for long enough to actually have a government. So, I mean, the chances of getting a flag that they agree on is pretty unlikely, isn't it? Well, we, 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 we hold out hope. Yes. Well, I'm sure you do. Now, why did I hear no mention of Wales in that uh, particular setup? Ah, well, when uh, the first Union flag was created, which was 1606 mm. under James the First and Sixth, um, it was to mark his the fact that he was king of both England and Scotland. Right. But England included Wales because Wales was the Principality of England. Yes. So they're not so England, keen on that now either, are they? Well, no, but they've never <laughs> actually revoked the, the act which makes them a Principality of England. Yeah. Um, they're, they're still, you know, that's why you get all these. Well, you used to get a lot of laws that said England and Wales. Yes. It was a compromise when what they actually meant was England. Right. But Wales is included. Hmm. Um, yes. Well, I've always been slightly puzzled by... situation. It needs fixing, but... It's, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great indicator of this, isn't it, as to why we have so many arguments in this, in this country. And by this country, I mean the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, because it is made up historically of all of these different places uh, with people who are very proud of the particular place that they're in and who think that they should have perhaps more influence in, in the government of themselves and of the whole country. Oh, absolutely. And of course, we're not just talking about England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Mm. You've got Yorkshire and Cornwall yes. and um, Glamorgan and, you know, people right down to counties have right. very strong identities. Have we not got Shetland now, was the latest one, that wants to have independence from Scotland? There was some talk of, of yes, they were talking about wanting independence. Yeah. They're probably the newest part of Scotland, mm. uh, I think, think in the... Medieval times, they were handed over to Scotland. I think as part of a marriage settlement. Yes, I think that's right. Um, so um, they, they've now decided that maybe they want to be independent. Yeah. So how old um, is, is the Union Jack then? Right. Well, the original version, which looked pretty much like the current one, but without the red and the diagonals, right, um, was 1606. Okay. And basically, King James wanted a flag. He still, there were two separate kingdoms, England and Scotland, but he wanted a flag that actually ships could use mm. to indicate they belonged to his kingdom, you know, his kingdoms, and what he called, and he pretty well sort of invented the term, Great Britain. Yes. So that's where we, we get the sort of Great Britain part from. Right. And then the current flag was actually created in 1801, when there was a union between Great Britain and Ireland, the whole of Ireland, not yes. just Northern Ireland. And that was when the Red Diagonals were introduced. Um, they were introduced to represent Ireland. Ireland didn't have a flag mm. as such uh, and didn't have a saint's flag. Um, so they basically borrowed one of the leading families in Ireland, the Fitzgerald's family, um, they borrowed their symbol, which was a red diagonal cross mm. on a white background, and very complicatedly added it to the Union flag in a way that means that it's not symmetrical. Yeah, that's a bit of a worry. So you, you've probably seen all these things about, is it upside down or yes. is it back to front? Yes. 
Well, that's because of these, the way they did the red diagonal. Mm. They only added half of the red diagonal along along the diagonal. Yes, because it's only on one side, isn't it, of the yes. white? So it's on the bottom. It's on the bottom side of the white, from what I'm looking at uh, now. Well, nearest the flagpole, it's on the bottom side. Yeah, and furthest from the flagpole, it's on the top side. Okay. So that means the flag has rotational symmetry. Yeah. Why did they do that? Well, it was because Scotland. You've got three kingdoms involved in this uh, design, mm. and Scotland was the senior kingdom to Ireland. So you couldn't just put the red diagonal on top of the white diagonal, because that would be putting Scotland behind Ireland. Yes. So they put half of the diagonal on it. <laughs> it was a compromise. It's great, isn't it? I'm also reading, right, which which I had no idea, that the blue shade... Uh, in the flag has changed. Yes, it's got darker. Mm. And um, why was that? Well, basically, it was practical. The dyes they had in those you know, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries were not particularly colour fast. And blue was one that tended to fade quite badly. So their solution to making the flags last longer mm. was make the blue darker to start with. Yes. And this, they would fade, this I suppose. happened right up until the end of the 20th century, by which time the Union flag was almost black. And then I, I hauled it back and said, said, no, this is ridiculous. It's meant to be blue and changed the colour specification. So it became royal blue again. Right. And it's so fascinating it's also to see it. where else the, the Union flag um, appears, because, of course... It's on, it's on the, the flags of New Zealand and Australia, but lots of other places, including, I see here, the state of Hawaii. Why is that? Now, now that is an interesting one, because, of course, Hawaii was never part of, of the British Empire. Right. But uh, the early explorers, or should I say European explorers, because obviously the Hawaiians were already there, when they came across Hawaii, they presented the king with a flag as a present, because mm. he liked, he, he'd never sort of had the idea of flying a flag, and they presented him with a flag, and he liked it so much, he decided he'd make it the flag of the island. So Hawaii has a Union flag in the corner, despite the fact it's never actually been British. Yes. They just liked the design. And why not? And why not? It is a great design. It is a great flag. So, um, yes, uh, and that was the flag of the Kingdom of Hawaii right up until... America, shall we say, took over. Mm, right. And I suppose they didn't take over Hawaii for, for quite some time before they, they had the, sort of the first part of the United States. But also, I guess, in Britain now, since we left the European Union, we see the Union flag more and more uh, because Boris, I think, ordered that it should be flown from all government buildings and the EU flag should not. Well, actually, it was Gordon Brown who ordered that it should be flown from government buildings. Yeah, but they flew both, didn't they, when, when it was Brown's time? Um, very few government buildings in Whitehall flew a EU flag, mm. but mainly because they only have one flagpole, most of them. Yes. Uh, but uh, but the um, before Gordon Brown, um, they only flew the flag on about fourteen days a year, right? Because it was only flown on you know the Queen's birthday. Yeah, there's a funny list, isn't there? Yes. Because I remember somebody pointed, I think it was the son pointed out that, you know, one of those days is Prince Andrew's birthday, which was a bit controversial yeah. this year. 
Yes, and and of course it, it keeps on having to be updated. You know which uh, which wives and spouses are are marked and which aren't, and at some point it will have to include Prince George and yeah. all this sort of stuff. Um, as long as so, it's not Harry and Meghan. Well, well, Harry of course is there, and I don't think Meghan was ever added. Hmm. Well, um, maybe you should no, be. Sorry, removed. Prince Harry isn't there. No, sorry, yeah. that's right. Prince right. Harry isn't there. Well, that's good. Um, but uh, I think in due course he would have ended up being there. But um, mm. yes, and, well, but it's yeah. fascinating so, stuff, I must say. So, what do you do? As... Days, he, anyway, Gordon Brown said, "No, this is ridiculous. We right. should fly the national flag every day." Yes, which which, which, which I think we we would all be very much heartily in agreement with. Tell me, uh, Graham, but just finally before we let you go, what what does a chief vexillologist do all 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 day? I mean, do you study different new flags? Do you advise on how to create new flags if somebody wants to do one? I I, I create new, new designs when they're needed. I do protocol, which is working out what you're going to do if you suddenly have some situation where. You know, the Duke of Edinburgh wants to attend an event, but um, the Queen's already there. But the event's in honour of the Duke of Edinburgh. How do you show that in flags? Yes. Uh, and so protocol um, is, is doing yeah. that. Or, indeed, if I'm doing a, a, a Zoom conference with uh, the Japanese Prime Minister, mm. um, should I have a Japanese flag behind me along with the British flag? I would say yes, because that's probably yes. something that the Japanese would, would respect and like. It's, it's, it's a courtesy. Yeah. Well, that's what, that's what protocol is. It's courtesy. Yes. Uh, so, so, you know, it's working out those, those little things. Okay. Interesting. Um, I design, as I said, design flags. I do artwork, which means I, I, somebody else has designed the flag, but we need electronic artwork mm. to actually be able to make the flags. Right. So I will create that. And there's been um, there's been some controversy, hasn't there, north of the border with the use of the saltire and the use of the Union flag? Because I think there's a lot of people who would prefer to see Scotland as an independent country, uh, who would rather not see the Union flag quite as much. Uh, the I have seen this. I think Scottish government buildings only fly the saltire. Mm, I think that's right. The Parliament building flies the Union flag. Yes, and I think they um, still might fly the European flag as well. Uh, they might do because, of course, Britain still is a member of the Council of Europe. Yes, but they also claim that Scotland voted to stay in the European Union, which is their other argument, which is a bit specious, to be fair, but they do it anyway. Well, well this is one... This is, you can use flags in many ways. Mm. Um, I mean, I've got the Independent uh, Republic of Mike Graham, for example. I mean, could you design yeah. me a flag? I could design you a flag? Well, I mean, off the top of your head, what would you put in it? Well... Since you're a member of the House of Graham, yes, uh, that's gold with a black strip along the top okay. with free uh, gold escalops. I like it. I like that's, an escalop. That's that's the arms of the um, Clan Graham. Okay, very good. Um, so we could then look at something that sort of symbolises a republic. Yes. Um, so it wouldn't so be a crown or anything like that, would it? No, exactly. Or, or maybe it'd be a, a crown split in two or something. Yes, or could it be a sword or something like that? Yeah, a, you know, or a sword, a, a sword claymore. piercing a crown. Yes, yes, I like that. You wanted something quite quite sort of strong, yeah. so maybe that would go on the gold bit. Mm, yes. Um, so uh, You could be guided, be... I suppose, in colours by the Graham Tartan as well, which is a bit like the yeah. Black Watch. 
Yes, it, it's it's blue and green and yeah. white. Yeah. Um, yeah, it so sounds it's good. Also, it also happens to be my clan, just to be awkward. Does it? So, um, oh, fantastic. So, uh, fantastic. Well, listen, well, maybe we should do it. Maybe we should get a little yeah. uh, a little uh, flag going. A little, a little drawing. Yeah, and I could it. put it behind me, you know, project it <laughs> behind me every show that I do. Graham, fascinating to talk to you. Thank you so much. Graham Bartram, uh, Chief Vexillologist at the Flag Institute, fellow member of the Graham clan. Why not? And maybe the creator of the flag of the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.